Welcome back to the Fourth Way Podcast. In this interview, I had the opportunity to interview Ron Schultes, a longtime friend and somebody who has quite a lot of experience working in the government. We kind of meander around in this episode, and we do talk a bunch about different ideas related to corporate propaganda. But I think one of the things that stands out to me from this conversation the most is this idea that a lot of this stuff is kind of gray and nebulous. What constitutes free speech? What constitutes propaganda? What constitutes rational discourse? And even if we can identify all of those things, where's the line when we call for governments to restrict? Uh, or, or where is the line in regard to what's moral? Sometimes there's this policy of just, well, you know it when you see it. You just know that something's wrong when you see it. Uh, but that's really subjective and doesn't sit too well with, with most of us. But I think that's good to understand, and I think that's good to kind of wrestle through this idea that things aren't always so black and white, and um, there's a lot of difficulty in in assessing these things, and a lot of humility that we should have when we come to these conversations. I also think this episode is important because a lot of the tone of the uh, the previous episodes in this section might have given you the impression that. Um, you know, maybe I leaned a little bit more towards uh, being anti-capitalistic or anti-free market or whatever you want to call it. And in this conversation with Ron, we get to kind of hash that out, especially at the end, where you know I, I discuss how there are really flaws to every system, and you know the the accrual of wealth and and capital, uh, it, while not an inherently bad thing to to get wealth is really problematic because we know how people use power and abuse power. And money is power. Right? Most of our conversation is us talking about how politicians are influenced by money. It's just how it works. That's what builds relationships, and that's what is going to uh, fuel legislation. right? Um, so that's, that's a problem, I think, um, fairly clearly. But at the same time, other systems have their own inherent problems, and they, they just accrue power slightly differently. But they, they wield it the same. They wield it um, and, and end up harming others, especially those who are kind of on the margins. So this episode is good because Ron comes from more of a free market standpoint, and so we get to talk about uh, maybe corporate propaganda, but then kind of round that out by discussing... Um, some of the, the pros and kind of what Ron is going for, especially as a Christian. And I think that's where our episode on the false prophet and how Christianity has dealt with wealth comes in. Wealth and freedom um, are, are good things, right? Plenty is a good thing. Having what you need is a good thing. But as a Christian, while I want to enable others to have freedom, God's call to me personally and to anyone who calls themselves a Christian, is to really reflect on, on what he's given to us and figure out what do we do with that? How do we live generously in love, helping the people on the margins rather than creating legislation that's going to wall up my wealth and protect me and my family while harming others right, at the expense of others? 
So this is a, a good episode to kind of balance out this section of the season and to just get a, get a good finishing look at uh, propaganda in the corporate world. So here it is, the interview with Ron Schultes. So I'm not sure how much of a, a background I've given uh, to you about wanting to talk to you um, for for this episode in particular, um, but I've I've been doing a lot of a lot of studying on propaganda. Okay. And so as I as I'm looking at propaganda, I looked at a lot of different areas. You know, propaganda and abuse, um, you know, how abusers use propaganda to to uh, manipulate their their victims and how they they cover it up and. Um, you know, propaganda in politics, propaganda in in with corporations, all kinds of things. Um, so when when I got to the corporation aspect, uh, I was trying to figure out who can I talk to that that might have some insight into how this all kind of uh, intermingles. And so I thought of you, and I thought of you because uh, there are there are a lot of overlapping areas that I think you have. So you value corporations and and free market business, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you have experience pushing back against the corporate overreach at the same time through politics. And you've told me a number of ways that you you can't stand how, how corporations <laughs> kind of uh, are intermingled with government. Right. And at the same time, you're also a Christian who who values justice, who values mercy, uh, generosity, and and all of those those things. And I know that a lot of people's heads probably explode when they think of all of those three things kind of coming together because some mm-hmm. of them, I think, in our culture, seem like they they just can't go. Right. Um, but but I feel like you you try to embody those three values. Would do you agree with that? I, I think so. I mean, maybe it's a walking contradiction, but no, I think you're right. I mean, I think. For me, it's obviously Christian faith is number one, first and foremost, obviously, but then how that plays out in a non-religious, let's just say human interaction, societal sphere, you know, I think the best way to live a lot of our Christian faith and values is through free market economics and and individual liberty. And so um, I try to embody those and and fight from it from that perspective. Um, And so you know, it's part of one of the reasons why I do what I do and, and where I work and, 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 you know, why I've kind of made that my mission, I guess, um, is to remove government barriers. So that way people can flourish in whatever way that makes most sense to them. Right. And so, uh, I, th- I think you hit it pretty well. Okay. Well, before, before I, uh, start grilling you with all the questions, um, maybe you could just briefly introduce who you are and, and kind of some of your background that might be pertinent for, yeah, for the discussion. Sure. So, um, my name is Ron Schultes. Uh, we've known each other for many, many years now. Um, I guess in terms of a pertinent background for this discussion, um, always been interested in politics and policy, um, kind of figured that's what I wanted to do with my life. The reasons why I changed over time, um, you know, obviously just hit on that a little bit. Uh, but in terms of background, kind of cut my teeth um, right at the end of college and right out of college, worked in the Georgia legislature as a legislative aide for a bit, um, and then moved to Chicago, spent some time in the private sector while Kristen was in, my wife was in grad school. That's kind of when I did a lot of my 
ideological reading and, and kind of working through issues in that time. And then uh, five, six years ago, five and a half years ago now, um, started working for a free market think tank. Uh, we focus solely on the state of Tennessee. That's where I live and is in Tennessee. Um, in that, in for my think tank, I'm our director of policy and research. And so I do a lot of economics research, policy writing. Um, and so I lead all of our in-house research efforts. I've published many research studies, uh, been interviewed quite a few times, both mostly state, a little bit of um, had some articles placed nationally, TV from time to time, things like that. Um, and and part of that, I also, I know we want to get into a little bit about this, uh, also lobby, um, registered lobbyist, and so help to try and get some of the reforms that my organization researches and cross the political finish line and enact it into law um, through through the political process. So that's a little bit of a background about, I guess, uh, who I am and, and what I do. So, all right, perfect. So, I think the probably the best place to start for a discussion in regard to propaganda and corporations is uh, with maybe the idea of free speech, because I I think um, you know propaganda can can be done in a lot of different ways. You can do it through images and and whatnot, but a, a lot of it comes through speech. And you know what is speech? An image is speech, uh, <laughs> and. So th there's a long history of the the progression of how speech has been viewed in regard to corporations. You know, are mm -hmm. corporations individuals, or uh, so do they even have the right to free speech? And what is free speech? Uh, what constitutes speech? So maybe you could give us uh, a little bit of a of a history as as far back as you can go, at least um, in regard to the United States. I know yeah. that a lot of people think of Citizens United, but that only that's only like 2010, and I know that there there's a history prior to that. Um, yeah. My understanding is that you know late 1800s there was there was some stuff that was going on and starting to change. So enlighten me, please. Yeah, well, first of all, like I, you know, I'm not a historian, and nor am I a lawyer. I just like to pretend I'm one, and so I'll talk a little bit about um, Citizens United, but I'll go back even further. I mean, this is something, the idea around free speech, right, is, uh, you know, obviously our constitution and a lot of the ideas embodied, and they come all the way back even before the United States was around with England, issues with the king and the enlightenment and, and things along those lines. And so, you know, these have been long running ideas around the idea, particularly around free speech. Um, there, there were con uh, colonial constitutions when we were still English colonies. For example, the Virginia Declaration of Rights included the ability around uh, freedom of the press. Usually that's where speech kind of started with this concept was around the press and being able to um, criticize leaders, right? It was this pushback against this idea of the divine right of kings. And so press should be able to criticize um, and this was something that was tempted very early on, in, even in American history. I think a lot of people don't realize this, like, you know, as soon as our founding fathers created and wrote down the Constitution, um, there were debates upon what it actually meant and how it applied pretty quickly. So, for example, President John Adams, the second president, kind of dealing with like a, a little mini war with pirates, the, I think it was the Barbary Pirates at the time, passed the Alien and Sedition Acts. If you haven't heard of those, uh, and one of them essentially 
the Sedition Act made it illegal to criticize the federal government. And they tried to lock up like newspapers that were critical of the federal government. Now, technically, it had to be falsehoods, right? But when the government is the one who's in charge of arresting and charging you, and if, if, if you criticize them, you know, what they deemed a falsehood was a pretty broad interpretation. And, and oftentimes they went after, um, so John Adams was a federalist. They went after Democrat, Republican, or essentially Jeffersonian newspapers and tried to have them arrested. Um, when the Jeffersonians took over, basically they repealed almost all the Alien and Sedition Acts, other than I think one, I think it's like the um, Alien Enemy Act, which essentially allows the president, and it's still been, it's in, in effect today, it can be used, um, allows the president in wartime to essentially detain non-citizens. Um, and so that that is still on the books from the 1800s. But essentially, this idea of like the freedom of the press and freedom of speech, you know, um, has been in conflict. Like, what does that actually mean? Pretty much since our, you know, even our second president, believe it or not. Um, the idea around corporations, you know, I think really has certainly taken on much more of an issue. And you mentioned Citizens United. Like I said, I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not going to get too much into legal analysis, but essentially the idea was there was a law at the time that said um, businesses, registered corporations could not engage in electioneering within a certain time frame before an election. So I think it was like 30 days before a primary, 60 days before a general. That, that might not be exact, but you kind of get the idea. And uh, a, a conservative group called Citizens United tried to, to challenge that. And essentially, um, you know, they rested on the idea of the First Amendment, which says Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. Um, and so essentially what happened was, is they said, look, you're politicking, right? The ability to talk politics is, if, if you could argue, is probably one of the most important types of speech, right? Particularly what the, the framers had in mind, right? Being able to talk about our civil government and everything, because um, they wanted to run ads, I think, that were critical of Hillary Clinton in the um, 2008 primary or something like that. And, uh, you know, the, the Supreme Court agreed, essentially, if nothing else, right? You, you know, maybe a corporation isn't a person, but it is an association of individuals, right? Essentially, that's what a corporation is, is a group of individuals who have joint proportions of ownership in a company. And so, therefore, individuals should not have their rights to free speech uh, limited. And so that barrier was struck down. And the reason why is they applied a an idea called strict scrutiny. You'll if you go to law school or anything like that, you'll kind of understand this. You know, judges kind of come up with tests over time. The judicial system come up with tests, and the idea around strict scrutiny is if you are going to infringe on a constitutional right, it, it's a very high bar, right? And essentially, you go into it assuming that the law is unconstitutional. And so for it to be upheld, you essentially the government has to prove there's an overwhelming and urgent need and that the law that they have serves a very particular government interest. And it's extremely narrowly tailored to address the issue at hand. 
right? So it's a very high bar for the government to overcome to prove the constitutionality of that law. And essentially the ideas of corruption or anything like that from running ads, the justices didn't buy it um, and said, you haven't met this idea of strict scrutiny in order for us to restrict an individual or a group of individuals through a corporation's right to politic. Um, there are lower tests that courts apply called like, for example, rational basis, which is basically the, the courts start from the position of, hey, we assume that this is constitutional. And as long as the government has a rational reason, it may not even be the, a good reason, may not even be correct, or there may be less restrictive ways to accomplish the end, it's okay. But we don't apply that usually to constitutional rights because um, they're seen as obviously the highest forms of rights that we have. And so that's essentially what happened. And, and so ever since then, right, we've, you know, corporations being people or obviously associations of people, they apply the idea of, you know, of the press as an association to be able to talk in politic. Um, as much as they choose. So um, does that kind of answer your question, I think, or, you know, best of my abilities probably, so. Yeah, yeah, it it definitely gets at it. And I want to I want to dig a little bit deeper with the next question. Okay. So, um, you know, we've got an idea that's, okay, so we have a constitution, bill of rights, all that stuff, and it, and it gives us some uh, some freedoms. And so if you're going to try to restrict a freedom or punish somebody in some way, then you need to you need to prove that that you know in a strict uh what what's the not strict construction strict, strict scrutiny. scrutiny yes so you need to you need to prove that uh, the the burden of proof is on you okay that that kind of makes some sense mm -hmm. um, but you know when we're we're talking about communication a lot of the authors that discuss propaganda mm -hmm. mention that you know in in democracies. They are susceptible, particularly susceptible to propaganda, mm. uh, because free speech kind of has has some loopholes in them, uh, in regard to it. So, like democracies, uh, and and especially capitalistic ones, where where you uh, con consumerism is important mm. and and freedom of choice in the market, you know, they're they're built on pillars theoretically of rational discourse and informed consumers. Right, yeah. inform voters whether you're consuming products or consuming uh, politicians. Sure, but uh, propositions then need to be they need to be accessible and able to be evaluated. Like that's what speech and discourse is. Mm -hmm. But one of the problems, as you start to look into what a lot of corporate advertisement and corporate speech ends up being, uh, what a lot of propaganda is, is that it's it's built around non-rational ideas. So, for example, one of the famous ones with, uh, I think it was uh, the first George Bush, uh, the Willie Horton commercial, where they've got this, um, uh, I forget who, you'd know who it was against. Who was the the guy that he was The facing? first time he ran? Yeah, yeah. Al Gore? Uh, no, 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 the first George Bush. Oh, that was Bill Clinton. He ran against, oh, when he won, was that George yeah. Dukakis, I think? Yeah, I think I think it might have been the caucus, but anyway, they they had this commercial, a Willie Horton commercial. You can look it up on YouTube, and it's like it's clearly dog whistling. Like it's mm -hmm. it, so it's, it's yeah. I know what you're talking about. I know the ad. I remember the yeah. ad. 
forget who it was against. Yeah. Yeah. It's just this, this one story, this, this black guy, the, the way that it's framed, it's mm-hmm. kind of like, well, they're, they're talking about this event that happens, but everything about it, you're like, oh, I, I know what they're really saying. And, mm-hmm. and it's not really a rational discourse. It's not, okay, well, let's evaluate the policies that got Willie Horton out. Let's evaluate who's responsible for it. It's, it's framed. And so it's not really rational discourse. Right. And uh, corporations use that kind of stuff a lot, like to, to get at your emotions. And they're not really telling you about a product. If they were, they could just say, hey, here's our product. Here are all the pros for it. You know, here's the nutrition value. Yeah. Take it if you want it. But that's not what that's not what they do because they know that that's not what what uh, triggers you to to purchase something. Sure. Um, so corporations, a lot of what they do, uh, everybody who uses propaganda, but especially corporations, they uh, they seek to form desires and ideologies and associations within consumers. So it's kind of like like uh, the movie Inception, where they they plant things inside of you. Right. Right. And then when you're at the store, you're like, oh, I want that, and you. You don't know how to evaluate, well, why is it that I want that? Sure. Um, so we see that there are laws against things like libel, slander, perjury, false advertising, you know, certain mm-hmm. forms of advertising which are even harmful to your health, like uh, you know, smoking in kids in kids' shows. You can't do. Now, right. maybe you'd be for some of that. I don't know. But you know, something like, like libel, well, why can't I have that free speech? Well, because when you say something that's, that can be damaging – to somebody else, uh, or it can create false perceptions in somebody's mind, then yeah. that can that's a problem. So how do you deal with, with these ideas? We live in a democracy where rational discourse is really what we're trying to protect. Uh, free speech is what we're protecting, but a lot of that is rational discourse that makes democracy run. Sure. Um, at the same time, you've got, in particular in this episode, corporate free speech that kind of violates that a lot. So how do we synthesize uh, those concepts here? Yeah, well, okay, so a couple of things I think. First, it's always important to remember, right, is one, um, there's a reason why throughout history um, people have been skeptical of democracies. We don't live in a democracy, right? We live in a republic, right? That's why we say to the republic for which it stands. You know, the founding fathers essentially thought democracy was mob rule, Right. And so that's how you can get swaying of large populations. Right. Um, You know, now how they try to go about creating an educated, rational voting public by basically limiting it to white male landowners. You know, I'm not saying that that was um, the way to do it, but there was an idea that they were like, yeah, we don't want everybody involved in making decisions, you know, um, in a lot of for the reasons why you're talking about you know, and I think in terms of the propaganda, though, I would argue that I would say that I think democracies or, you know, republics are less likely to be swayed by propaganda because you can have various sources. You know, look at some of the I think the most the states that have been most uh, held by propaganda are the ones where there is no free speech. Right. Like think about North Korea. There is no such thing as free speech or freedom of the press. I mean, and they think like because own, there's only state-sponsored news, which is essentially propaganda, right? There's a reason what? Don't they think like they've won every World Cup or every medal in every Olympics? And that's obviously not true, but they completely believe it because it's the only source of information, 
right? I mean, we, you know, saw an, even going to the Nazis and the strict censorship. I mean, and you want to talk about a population that was swayed to do obviously or go along with awful, horrible things. Um, so I, I disagree that the fact that a, you know, constitutional republic, democracy, whatever you want to say, is most susceptible to propaganda due to free speech. I, I would disagree with. I think history has shown that at, at the very least, when you have the ability to have competing ideas, it can balance things out. Obviously, it leads to division and, you know, a lot of the stuff that we have today, which is so I'm not saying that there's no cost. Um, so, I mean, I think that's one important point to think about. Um, but in terms of like, you know, balancing also some of the things around corporate propaganda and this idea around like libel and 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 slander and all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, there isn't necessarily a, a unlimited right to free speech. I mean, we have what are called like time manner restrictions, right? It's the whole idea. You can't scream fire in a in a crowded theater, right? You know, we've all heard that example. Um, the ideas around libel and slander are around not knowingly publishing falsehoods that damage somebody's reputation and cause harm, right? But I think a lot of that kind of stuff often comes back to the idea of harm, right? I mean, most of our laws started off with this idea of, of fixing wrongs, right? I mean, that's why we have punishments for criminal crimes, right? It's to make whole or civil lawsuits. Like if I injure you, you know, you can sue me for the harm that I've caused. That's the, the idea around libel, slander, um, and a lot of those things, or like, um, you know, knowingly deceptive false advertising, right? It's, it's, you're trying to defraud essentially somebody knowingly. And so that's kind of the, a lot of the checks that we have, right? I mean, that's the whole idea around like screaming fire in a crowded theater. One, you can cause harm to people in a mass panic, but two, you've also caused monetary harm to the theater owner by essentially interrupting the show and, and people leaving, right? And so a lot of these you know, restrictions we have are, are around that idea. Um, I think let's see what what else do you think you want to touch on there was a lot in in that kind of of question or anything yeah um maybe just to before we kind of uh, move on or or dig deeper uh, some of the things that you said um you know i i'm so I, if i said that democracies are the most susceptible that's not what i okay. intended to convey but but they they said that there is a susceptibility uh they're particularly vulnerable in the sense that so sometimes you'll see people like Richard Dawkins is a famous example. So he's this this uh, staunch atheist, and he refuses to debate Christians mm. uh, like like William Lane Craig because he he says I'm not going to give that position validity because mm. by engaging with the idea you give it validity. So mm -hmm. you know, do you have do you have a debate on uh, the the humanity and value? of jews or black people with somebody from the kkk right. now, you're not going to have a debate on that because by having a debate you give some sense of credibility or credence uh to some to some people who'd be looking on and saying hey you know what well, that he made some good points i i thought the idea was crazy but well if they're engaging in debate like maybe there is something to it mm. and so you'll have people who who don't want to engage with with certain fringe ideas gotcha. so as not to give them validity. I mean, I think maybe it's not necessarily you want to give them as much time of the light of day, but I do think that 
there is merit in allowing people essentially to trip themselves up in awful ideas. And I think most people are going to realize that, right? I mean, there's a, the old saying of Voltaire of, uh, you know, I may disagree with you, but I defend your right to say it. Um, or even think about the ACLU when it defended the Nazis' ability to parade down Skokie, right? Um, you know, unfortunately, the First Amendment, the idea of free speech is not there to talk about the weather. It's there to talk about controversial things, right? Um, and so, you know, I don't think by having the Nazis parade down Skokie in Illinois, it lended credence to um, Nazi ideas, you know. So, I mean, that's a, a, a personal opinion of mine. Um, you know, and, and yeah, I'm not saying that democracies are the most susceptible, but I mean, I think it's a it's a human nature, right? And and, and so, at the very least, in a in an idea of free speech, we have the ability to kind of like have those ideas play out against each other. You know what I mean? So, so then you know the other thing that you mentioned was with something like libel. You know, you're you're causing damage or harm to mm -hmm. to somebody else. So if I think about Bush's Willie Horton advertisement. Uh, and I think about what he was saying without actually saying it, that causes damage to the other party because people make decisions based mm -hmm. on what they infer from from particular advertisements. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, what constitutes damage? What constitutes speech? What, it, it seems like yeah. it's it's very fuzzy. It is. You're right. I mean, that you know, um, for, that's why we have obviously courts have played this kind of stuff out for forever. I mean, trust me, I have seen some political ads that I just see here in the state. Like, uh, uh, for example, this is a, a true story. Um, we had a congressional race here in uh, Nashville area. And <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, it's almost laughable to think about one of the candidates for the Republican nominee for this congressional seat, right, in the primary. It was a primary race, and it was widely – it was one of those races where the, the primary is the real election, essentially. And uh, one of the candidates was the former Tennessee Speaker of the House, and she had voted years ago to allow illegal uh, immigrants to have driver's licenses, okay? And literally there was an attack ad on her. Uh, where, hey, they showed her voting for uh, allowing illegal immigrants to have voter licenses, which was a, a, a true fact, right? But then the ad continued with, hey, uh, the people who bombed 9-11 were – got illegal driver's licenses, and therefore she supported 9-11, right? And you're just like – I mean that was – I mean it was laughable on its face. It's the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. You know, I mean, in clearly like falsehoods that she supported 9-11, but that was an ad that was a real thing here in Metro Nashville this past fall. And, um, you know, where is that line in terms of like causing harm and falsehoods? Now, I don't think it probably caused a whole lot of harm just because I think it was so laughable on its face that hopefully nobody was really swayed by that, but you never know. Um, but you're right. It is fuzzy. I mean, and that's why. You know, you have civil lawsuits and litigants that kind of figure that out. When does it cross that line? We have, you know, generally different standards for public figures, right? You've probably heard about that, you know, the idea of like publishing somebody's dirty laundry that's just an average citizen versus a well-known 
politician, right? We've kind of over time developed these different standards, but it, it's something that plays out all the time. You're right. It's, 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 it's a fuzzy area. Yeah. I want to move uh, a little bit more into the, the uh, practical from, from the theoretical and murky. And I want you to just kind of lay out how some of the stuff has, has played out. Sure. Um, so I know you've seen some things in, in your time in, in politics mm -hmm. uh, in regard to corporate influence. So I, I want to know things like how much legislation is influenced or controlled by corporate lobbyists, mm. how many resources are, are they throwing at this, and, and do you have any specific examples of, uh, of that kind of thing? Oh, yeah. I mean, it happens all the time. I mean, you know, I, here's what I'll tell you, at least at the state level, okay, which, you know, is a whole separate discussion in that I don't think people pay enough attention to the state level. You know, I think we all generally know hardly anything ever happens in Washington, right? Whereas your state government is going to pass hundreds of laws every single year, you know, <laughs> um, they pass as many as Congress does practically in a decade at every single year, generally. Um, and so, uh, I would say the vast majority of laws or proposed laws come from some kind of special interest. I'm just going to be real with you. Um, most, most state elected officials, for example, um, don't necessarily have a whole lot of ideas in terms of what they want to run as a bill. They run on principles generally, and then they get elected, and then people come to them with specific ideas for bills and legislation. Um, you know, to the point of like, it's almost, I don't want to say a joke, but like, I have seen it where a state lawmaker will say, like, I actually thought of this one myself, like, you know, because nobody came to them. I mean, and, and part of it is just going to be the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, you can't be an expert on everything, right? And so they're just, they know their area or their general, like if they're a business owner or a farmer or something like that, they know their one thing, right? And they maybe have principles that kind of guide them generally about specific topics. And then it's usually some kind of, you know, quote unquote, special interest that says, hey, in, you know, you say you stand for this, here's an idea for you, right? Um, and, you know, I think special interest is, is, maybe we should talk a little bit about that, but like, yeah, some of, sometimes that's specific companies, right? Sometimes that's, most people probably don't realize that there's a good chance that they have a lobbyist that represents their profession. And so chances are most people are a special interest, right? Even if they don't realize it, you know, um, if, if you're a teacher, for example, you better believe there is a lobbyist that represents whether it's your teacher's union or in a teacher's association, right, to lobby for the special interest of teachers, right? Um, it, I mean, professional associations is, is very common. And then there's a very small group of nonprofits that represent usually issues or ideas. Um, for example, the organization that I work at. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you want to talk about like how much of the laws that are out there are influenced by associations, organizations, corporations that get them at least introduced, it's a very, very, very high percentage, particularly at the state level. Like I would say 
85%, 90%. Yeah, but you you make a good point that, okay, a politician gets in office, they don't know about farming, or if they do know about farming, they don't know about teaching or all all the many, many things. So it doesn't make sense to have have experts come to you. I think Mm -hmm. uh, maybe one of the things that that makes me a little bit more uncomfortable. I just talked to my, my cousin and he, uh, you know, he's, he was in the FDA for a bit. And now he's a consultant. Uh, and I've talked to some friends who, who've been in the army uh, and read a number of books where people talk about the way that the system works. You know, you go in, you come out and you do consulting mm-hmm. and it, it's, it's this revolving door. Oh yeah. Um, and, and, you know, you go, you get a lobbyist and then you get out of you get out of politics and now you have a nice cushy job in that. It just seems, yeah. it's, it seems very, um, I don't know, self, self-interested and, and uh, muddy. Oh yeah. I mean, I, there are many former lawmakers that go on to then become lobbyists or um, employees of different departments that become lobbyists or um, legislative aides, you know, like I used to be that go on to become lobbyists for different uh, associations or, or um, uh, you know, for-profit lobbying companies who basically almost like a lawyer, they don't represent a specific company. They are a business and they try and get clients that then they turn around and represent. Um, and I think it comes down to, you know, at, at that kind of level, generally, the currency of, of politics is relationships right is 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 a good way to put it i think is the idea that if somebody has a relationship with somebody right they are more likely to get in the door and have their idea heard like take the word lobbying right it's literally about sitting in a lobby hoping to be able to interact with that decision maker right and so the the pre the currency of that is his relationships and and being able to get in the door and meet with someone you know so for example i mean it just is a matter of fact that you know when you're an elected representative right you represent tens of thousands maybe hundreds of thousands of people you know and sometimes you're kind of approached by crazy people right and so if it's somebody that you know and that you trust you know and they're like, hey, I want to talk to you about something. Just because of that longstanding relationship that you have, you're much more likely to at least hear them out and get you know them the right of day. Like I, I'll talk about, for example, this past year, my organization worked on a bill around food trucks, where um, food trucks, if you think about it, are obviously mobile businesses, and so the problem is, is they often face a patchwork of regulations when they travel around. So they go from city carnival to fair or whatever, and they can face a very different regulatory environment in every city that they want to operate, which makes it incredibly difficult, right? In some cities, they have to pay us a, a permit every single day they want to operate. In some, they're banned completely. Um, in some, they face extremely protectionist regulations. So for example, some cities to protect brick and mortar restaurants over food trucks uh, say, hey, you can't be within so many feet of a brick and mortar restaurant. Or like there's one city in Tennessee that says, hey, if you sell 
um, you, you know, you can't be within a certain distance of a brick and mortar restaurant that serves a similar type of food as your food truck. So for example, if you sell tacos out of a food truck, you couldn't be within a quarter of a mile of a Mexican restaurant, right? But we can have KFC and Chick-fil-A, two brick and mortar places right next to each other, but we couldn't have a food truck. And so anyways, we wanted to just say, hey, if a food truck wants to operate on private property, they can do so. Cities can regulate as much as they want, ban whatever on public roads, public parks, all that. But if I'm having a pool party or a birthday party for my child and I want to have a food truck over to serve my party, my guests, whatever, you can't ban that. And we thought we started to get movement until cities band together to kill it. And essentially what happened was is every lawmaker that was going to have to vote on our bill got a call from their local mayor, right? And said, don't do this. This is a local issue. We should be able to regulate or ban these or however we want. And we lost the votes within a matter of an hour, essentially, right? That's a true story. I've, I've, I went into a committee thinking I had the vote like 15 to five. And within an hour beforehand, it swapped from five to 15 because every single one got a call from their mayor. And so that goes to that idea of influence that I talked about, right? Like if you're a state politician and one of your local mayors calls you, that mayor just has access through, you know, through connection and influence that an average person didn't have. So we had food trucks that were their own constituents just saying, hey, I just want to operate my business. But it didn't matter because they weren't as influential. They didn't have the relationship that a city mayor did with that state representative. And so they listened to one mayor over 10 constituents, you know, as an example. Um, so maybe it's a stretch, but that it feels like such a double standard to me that that we protect corporate speech, right? <laughs> and, and I know I know it's probably a push to say that this is freedom of assembly for for me to have a pool party and and have a food truck there. But it seems like if it's on private property, like that's that's a right. So yeah. it, and, yeah. and that's that's where it's it's such a struggle here because for me because. I understand the importance of, of free speech, but I think that a lot of a lot of the way the ways that we see corporate speech, mm -hmm. it's not really rational speech. And then at the same time, it's used to curb the the rights of uh, other people, generally people with less money. Uh, so food trucks, I would take it has less money, have less money than KFC yeah. and the brick and mortar stores, probably. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think. Now, that was an example of other politicians using speech, but I mean, that kind of happens all the time when where essentially larger corporations use speech to um, essentially gain a monopoly. I mean, that happens all the time. Um, it's it, it, The term is called rent-seeking or political entrepreneurship. Um, and because the idea is, let's say, let's say you're a business, right? You're a large, large company that is facing some kind of um, upstart uh, competitor, right? And you have two choices. You either have compete through the market, which can cost, I, I'm just going to make up numbers, $100 million through sales, ad campaigns, all that. Or you can spend $2 million or even less than that oftentimes. Let's say you spend $100,000 on a lobbyist to restrict your competition, right? you know, through some form or measure. Well, in terms of a business's 
profit motives. It's like we could spend millions of dollars or tens of thousands on a lobbying effort and gain the same gain the same advantage. Why shouldn't we take that route, right? Um, I'll give you I'll give you an example. Uh, we <laughs> we were dealing with and um, one time ar around this idea of auctions and uh, and so generally auctions or auctioneering is licensed. It's a licensed profession in most states, right? If you want to be an auctioneer, you have to get a government license in order to do that in most states. Um, and the idea around that is, is fraud, handling money, all that kind of stuff. Um, well, as you can imagine, uh, the auctioneering industry is kind of going the way of the dodo bird as with the internet and technology and eBay and things like that, right? And uh, and so here in Tennessee, one year we had this idea of there was this idea of extending online auctions to or sending the auctioneering license to online auctions and essentially regulating the internet, right? Well, essentially what happened was was eBay was like, well, that's not going to happen. We're, that hurts our business model, and so they had a lobbying effort and got themselves exempted from the bill. Right now, they didn't care that anybody else was going to be regulated. They they knew that they weren't going to be regulated. And some other ones, uh, Copart, which is a uh, like a car part uh, manufacturing and you know automobile like online auction site, they got exempted. But we found some small businesses who didn't run that. And we're like, wait a second. So now I'm going to be regulated when my big big competition isn't right. And so. Our organization actually sued that. Um, also on first um, or um, one, uh, you're regulating online commerce. It's a form of speech. So we actually got that struck down on First Amendment grounds, but also the Commerce Clause, because essentially you could be out of state running an auction business and have Tennessee clients, which we required you to be regulated, which states don't have the ability to regulate the internet because it's interstate commerce. Um, but it's a great example of a, a large business just saying, hey, instead of dealing with this, we'll deal, we'll hire a lobbying effort to get ourselves exempted or get ourselves a favor, right? Um, and 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 beat our competition through that way. Like the very first example I ever saw of this, and I think we've talked about this before, and it's kind of what led me down a rabbit hole of there's a difference between what we are today. When, and you know what we call capitalism and what really is um and it was dealt with uh delta when i worked in the georgia general assembly after 9 11 uh obviously the airline industry was extremely hurt right people were afraid of flying and atlanta has the largest airport in the world and is it, it you know delta is their number one employer um the airport's the number one employer generally as an industry as a place and so it was going to be a huge impact on Georgia and Atlanta's economy. And so what they did was they said, okay, hey, for a period of time, we're going to um, essentially cut the sales tax on jet fuel, right? Uh, and so all the it reduced the cost for all airlines, which you know I think is that's that's a general thing because it impacted everybody equally, so it wasn't an issue. When it came back up to be renewed, only Delta was able to get. The credit going forward, right? Only Delta was, and that was through a strong lobbying effort. And I saw that play out in real time, where there were elected officials that were really struggling about, um, 
I don't think it's fair, but Delta's the number one employer. They're saying they're going to leave Atlanta if we don't do this for them, which I always think is overblown, right? Um, you know, I know you want to talk about stadiums, uh, which is another area that this plays out, but Delta was able to get it. And within a, several years, AirTran, which was also based out of Atlanta, went bankrupt, right? Now, do I think it's solely because of that? I don't think so. But the idea that they had to compete, it's the same business, same industry, same place, but just because they weren't as big as Delta, they didn't get the same tax break, right? Um, and so you can see this all the time, um, how much rent-seeking plays out in politics all the time. So one of the things that you said, I think back when we were talking about the food trucks, um, you said that it's not so much corporate propaganda, uh, it, it's politicians doing these things. But I guess from from my uh, novice understanding, it would seem like the reason that the politicians want something or advocate for something is because the businesses who fund their campaigns are are telling them to do that. And so yeah. even if even if it's the politicians, aren't the politicians by and large the mouthpiece of corporations? And and again, I I know that you can you can catch it kind of as, well, yeah, but those are the people that they have relationships with. And and I'm sure that's true to some extent. Like sometimes it is it is just relational. But me, as as just a lone individual, I'd be thinking, okay, well that's that's great. But what you're telling me is that I'm not going to have a relationship with my senator. Really, the relationship revolves around who has money. So mm. what 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 talks isn't speech. What talks is money. <laughs> money is speech in yeah. politics. Yeah, I I mean I don't disagree with that to a large extent. Um, you know, it's. It, it's a problem of incentives, right? Where, unfortunately, most politicians' number one incentive, once they become elected, is to stay elected, right? And how they do that is through campaigning, which requires funds. And so who donates to campaigns, right, usually gets that influence, right, that, that opportunity to at least get in the door. You know, and so it, I mean, yeah, it's obviously a combination of somebody that's been there for a while that has, you know, long standing relationships. But yeah, a lot of it also comes from who's going to help donate to my campaign, right? I mean, we have, there's a saying, you know, talking about political influence here. And it's like, it's not the last check that, that, that matters, it's the next one. Right. And so politicians are usually very uh, deferential to make sure that they get that next check that helps them fill up their campaign coffers. Right. And so um, what they're willing to do or, or at least talk to to hear out in order to, you know, to get that donation to fund that campaign is uh, is, is exactly that. So, yeah. All right. Uh, my next question, I'm as I'm looking at it, I'm trying to to figure out how to to phrase it the best. So hopefully you'll you'll understand what I'm trying to say, but I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. So 
a lot of what we've been talking about has been more like positive sorts of of bills that are are put in place. Um, have you ever seen anything like let's say there's a lot of is social upheaval about say global warming and like everybody really wants it and uh, but then uh, industries corporations are able to kind of uh, kind of divert that attention to something else hmm. um, or or kind of deflect a bill that's that's uh, maybe going against them and sway public uh, yeah. Um, what I can give a specific example of is actually almost the opposite, and that's what made it so unusual. Maybe that's a, a the the most specific answer I can give. Um, was uh, and and you know I don't, I'm not saying anything of where I stood or particularly my organization stood on this, but um, as a result of COVID, right, there were a lot of uh thoughts about what can or should a business be able to require of its employees and all that kind of stuff, right? And typically, um, you know, small business owners are very influential members or, or people, I should say, particularly of, of state and local elected officials. Um, but there was such a clamoring from grassroots uh, folks in Tennessee that they shouldn't be fired or banned from not refusing to, you know, get a vaccine if uh, if their employer required it. Um, that they actually went against business interests, and uh, it, it was so remarkable <laughs> uh, that for once they're like, "Hey, to our friends in the business community, right? I mean, I can even play the clips. Like, I know that this isn't something that we would normally do. Is is go against." your wishes in, in essentially so, uh, you know, uncertain terms, but we, we have heard such outcry around this that we have to, you know? Um, so I, I can't say that I've heard where they've diverted or um, squashed, but I have, I've seen a specific example of where like, it was so unusual that they didn't hear side with, you know, particular businesses. Um, one that I can think of. Yeah. Cause I, yeah, no, that's that's a, a good example. Um, w what I was thinking of, and maybe you haven't seen it, but there was this, I don't know if it was a Stanford study or something, uh, but there's this. Uh, oh, I, I do have one example that's not necessarily by a corporation, but kind of a similar example. Okay. Go ahead and finish. Sorry. Yeah, so there's this there's this uh, Stanford study, and, and they were trying to determine what, what influences public policy. Mm -hmm. And so they, they have this graph. And it's it says okay. What you would expect is that um, if if public policy followed public opinion, you'd expect this linear graph. The more public opinion, the higher the public opinion, the higher the chance of this Something law, law being passed. Yeah. Um, but what they what they show is that okay, right right around thirty percent is where or 50 or something i think it was 30 is kind of like it doesn't matter where public opinion is 30 percent is the chance of of a bill getting passed mm -hmm. what they what they do show is that there is an almost linear graph with uh in, in terms of uh lobbying or corporate influence sure. on a bill corporate desires 
Now, I've I've heard some people kind of push back against the study. So I, you know, and how do you determine the methodology of of how strong a public opinion is and how how strong corporate influence is? Right. It's nebulous, but it makes a lot of sense to me. And so that that's kind of what I was yeah. what I was wondering is if if public policy follows corporate interests and but corporate interests don't want to be the bad guys, how are they are they able to kind yeah. of uh, create the public opinion right. to center around the, the bills that they're passing. Well, I think it comes always down to the idea of the vocal or influential minority over the will of a silent majority, right? Um, so a great example of that, and this is where I was going, like I said, it's not a corporate interest, but s- similar vein where um, in a lot of states still, particularly conservative states, right, Um Public opinion is overwhelmingly for, if not recreational, at least medical marijuana, right? Like overwhelmingly. You said you particularly know. in conservative states. Yes. Well, See, that, what, that kind of surprises me. Well, okay. uh, let me – sorry. But oftentimes it's not the case. It's still illegal is, is what I'm saying in, in conservative states. Um, there isn't a huge difference – between blue states and red states around medical marijuana. But yet still, there are many red states that have not passed any kind of marijuana legalization, um, including my home state of Tennessee, because of influence from cops. It's what it boils down to. The vast majority of people support at least medical marijuana. Like recreational is a little bit different, but on the medical side, it is extremely popular. It's like 80%, 80%, right, plus. But yet, because cops don't like it in a lot of states, it is often defeated, particularly in red states, because, you know, got to back the blue, you know, want to be seen as pro-police, and, and, and the influence that your local sheriffs, policemen have with state elected officials, even though it is extremely popular, particularly as, you know, in the aftermath of, I should say aftermath, but the result of the opioid crisis, right, as an alternative to a painkiller, you know, recreational marijuana is even popular amongst, you know, people that were very anti-marijuana very even 10 years ago. But in many red states, it's still not allowed because of influence from police. Um, so, so, so that's a great example of like that public opinion, right, or um, uh, one that I have personally seen. Um, that I've worked on, like I said, is not a um, a corporate specific interest, but similar that that same vein in terms of public opinion doesn't necessarily make policy. Uh, Tennessee is one of the four states that doesn't have a cap on the growth of property taxes. Now, Tennessee is very often considered a low tax state, right? Um, it's one of the few states that doesn't have an income tax, all that kind of stuff. Um, but it, along with Vermont, Hawaii and New Hampshire, it is one of four states that does not have a cap on the growth of property taxes. Those states, at least particularly Vermont and Hawaii, are extremely blue. And then you have Tennessee, very, very red. Um, We did a poll. We tried to say, hey, we're not saying you can't increase property taxes, but if we had a bill once that if you want to increase it by more than a certain percentage, you've got to get a voter referendum approval to do so. It, we polled it. It was like 
95% approval rating amongst voters. Like that's that's like maybe even higher than Jesus numbers, right? In terms of a poll favorability. And it didn't stand a chance because local governments using their influence, essentially the government that local people support through taxes, use their tax dollars to lobby against something that would have helped their own constituents, right? Um, so I've seen that, that's a personal example, but I mean, I think it always comes back to that vocal, um, influential minority rather than a diffuse silent majority is, is a, explains a lot of what you're talking about there. And, and I guess that's why you say that local matters more because nobody's paying attention to what happens locally. Right. So therefore, cause I'm like, well, how do those people get reelected? Well, because that's not on the nightly news. Exactly. Uh, yeah. yeah. More people know like things that you know Ted Cruz or AOC say than the somebody that actually represents them in their own backyard at their state capitol, right? I mean, because we've nationalized everything essentially. So, hmm. so going back to uh, to what you said about the the police and and marijuana, is that and and maybe you don't know, but is that kind of like like with war? I think a lot of times there's this idea that well it, um, and and like investments right gambling. So if you if you lose and but you play and you play and play and you keep losing, it's kind of like well I've invested all of this money and now I have to I I have to keep playing to get my my money out of it. Is it kind of like that where the police are like hey look if if right now we say that we're not going to criminalize marijuana that invalidates my life for the you know my whole career because now you're telling me that what i did was was worthless it was pointless it was maybe even wrong that mm -hmm. we were locking those people up do you know what the rationale behind that is um i mean i'm sure that's part of it you know you're talking about like some cost fallacy um i think part of it is it just makes their job more difficult um i think part of it is is it's you know, marijuana is used as a reason to stop and look for other things, right? It's usually like, I use this, you know, for people listening, I'm using air quotes, like a gateway investigation, right? Like, you know, the whole joke of it being a gateway drug, right? It's like, I can, it's the same thing with like, uh, you know, taillights, right? If I, If we criminalize having your taillight out, it gives me an opportunity to stop you and search for other things, right? And so I think some, I think that's part of it as well, you know? So I think there's a lot of reasons why. Um, I mean, you know, I think some of it is just legitimate in terms of enforcement of like, okay, if I'm a standard police officer, I catch somebody with marijuana and they say it's a prescription, how am I as a cop? supposed to determine is this a valid prescription or not like i mean i think there's you know some legitimate concerns over the um enforcement of that right and 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 how do you deal with that in the moment but the idea like that that's hasn't been figured out by a lot of other states now at this point you know is kind of silly right um and so so i mean i think there's a variety of factors as as to why that happens yeah that's just that's just crazy when you're talking about people's lives you know yeah. that well you know if, if we just keep it illegal and we keep sending people to jail and we keep using all that tax money it, it, do you think any of it's also um it's not i don't think it's eminent domain what's the uh eminent domain the the, asset forfeiture is what there you mean. go yeah asset for do you think that maybe has something to do with it too 
Oh, I, I think personally, absolutely, right? We, uh, there's a report, for example, that before I got to where I work now, our organization worked on some civil asset forfeiture reform. Um, getting rid of it is extremely difficult, <laughs> but at the v, we were able to get some reporting requirements around it like, hey, every police department or sheriff's office, you have to at least report what you have taken right through civil asset forfeiture and uh you know the idea around it is 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 that that money or whatever was being used in the process of a crime right but one of the i remember the first time i ever read it it was like it included like some i think there were like three trombones and a flute that had been seized when you're like what does that have to do with anything you know um and so it's just some of the funny stuff you see um but yeah you know i think that's possibly part of it, you know, I don't know. I hate, I'm not going to speculate, so. Right, okay, that, that's probably <laughs> safe, safest thing to do. I, and, and I mean, there usually isn't just one answer and just yeah. a simple answer. There's there's a multitude of, of answers. Um, sure. Yeah. Right. Um, all right, so to kind of move, move just a little bit further, you know, and okay. maybe this is, a little bit off base, but one of the examples when I think of, I, I would call it corruption maybe, or, or kickbacks is sports stadiums. Oh, and yeah. maybe, I'm, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I don't understand how it works. Maybe it, it's, it's great, oh, yeah. but you, you build these, I mean, the price of these things, what, what, I don't remember what the Cowboys stadium was, but it was 1 billion, maybe two. I don't remember what it was, but we're talking oh, yeah. well, billions. I mean, that's, pretty, that's pretty cheap now, actually. Oh, um, really? SoFi Stadium, where the Rams play and the Chargers play, I think is the most expensive stadium, and I think that was like seven billion, maybe or five billion, something like that. I think it was five billion, five billion plus. Do you know what percentage was paid by taxes? So, actually, funny story. That's the first time, really, in a long time that it wasn't. Um, it was completely privately funded, um, SoFi Stadium. Um, but uh, this is very near and dear to my heart right now because the Tennessee Titans are getting a new stadium and it is the largest uh, public subsidy of a, of a football stadium in American history. Um, their new stadium is going to be about 2.2 billion. Um, and the state alone is offered $500 million towards it. So, well, there you go. Your property taxes. Yeah. <laughs> well, the sales taxes, cause it's from the state, but yeah. So um so yes, yeah, so I'm very familiar with this subject. I've done a lot of work and on it, and unfortunately have lost. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so may, maybe you can kind of elaborate then, or maybe there's not really anything to elaborate on. Maybe it's as simple as it as it looks. But so you get these these billion dollar stadiums, these investments, a lot of times subsidized substantially by the state. Yeah. Uh, to me, it seems extravagant and wasteful, and it seems like there are probably a lot of people benefiting you know, construction companies, the, the sports teams themselves, the owners, wealthy investors. Yeah. Is there something more to sports stadiums or is this a good example of, uh, you know, kind of being sold something that's, that's really uh, not true. Like it yeah. benefits me. Yeah. You know, it's really funny in a, in a world of uh, division around a lot of things in this country, actually sports stadiums um, is something where, uh, both sides of economists agree is they make no sense whatsoever is stadium subsidies. 
Um, they are woefully inefficient. Um, all, I mean, it, seriously, they're, they're a terrible deal for taxpayers. Um, and essentially why they happen is, is exactly what you described, right? Special interests from construction, uh, tourism uh, in, um, offices, tourism economic development agencies, um, uh, obviously the billionaire families, right? And it's sold through what I would call press clip economics, right? If we do this, we're going to have... Um, uh, you know, the Super Bowl, and we're going to have all these people, tourists coming here and, and all this kind of stuff, you know, that's going to pay, it's going to pay for itself. It never does. Um, first, a couple of things. What all, always ends up happening, a new stadium does not make the difference between somebody coming to a city to view a game, right? Um, it, it doesn't work. They come there for the game itself, regardless of the stadium, Right. Uh, second, it doesn't lead people to spend more money. It just diverts their spending. So a lot of studies show this, that you spend a bunch of money on a new stadium. Yeah, maybe you go to a stadium again now, but that money that you would have that you were going to spend on tickets, maybe you would have gone to buying clothes or going to restaurants or movies or something, some other discretionary spending. So it doesn't in, in, create more spending it just diverts it um and then the idea around um uh like one-time events like the super bowl or final four they're woefully exaggerated studies have shown um and they most of the benefits for them come from the existing stadium so you have these massive investments for an incremental benefit usually it's like all right you already had a team you already had games, right? Oh, you spend billions of dollars on a new stadium to have a one-time event like the Super Bowl, you know? So it doesn't create billions of dollars in value to have one week, you know, of the Super Bowl. Um, some studies have shown, for example, that like a baseball stadium, right? Which, you know, has a lot more home games than a football stadium does. You know, was it like, I'm not a baseball guy, but like 80 some odd home games plus playoffs has the average economic impact of a mid-sized department store like a Kohl's because a Kohl's is open every day <laughs> people come in and spend money whereas so much of the time stadiums just sit there empty you know um and, and this is something like left-leaning organizations like Brookings um or uh, Stanford University has found that um you know, the, the Mercatus Center, which is very right-leaning or, you know, conservative libertarian. Um, it, it is it is terrible economics. They don't create economic growth. They're, they're a huge waste. They, they cost taxpayers millions, if not billions of dollars, all that. So you're not wrong. <laughs> so then how do, how do they keep happening? Is it because, like you said, we don't pay attention locally? I mean, everybody, if there's a stadium being built in your city, you know it happens and you know what's happening. You know that it's coming from your tax money. Right. Um, but is it because you don't associate it? Like when I go to pay my taxes, it's not like it's itemized. You know, it's not like there's there's a line item like, well, you know, this, this percentage of your taxes went and paid for the mm -hmm. stadium. Like what goes into that to, to keeping me from firing all of my congressmen? Yeah, exactly. I mean, so, I mean, it goes back to one that 
idea of uh, diffuse benefits and concentrate or diffuse costs, concentrated benefits, right? Like, yeah, you're right. In the grand scheme of things, right, it might cost you $100 of your taxes towards a new stadium. Is that going to get you all fired up to go and pick it outside City Hall or go, you know, travel to your to your capital if you don't live there to sit down with your state representative when they're going to be voting on it and they have like four days notice, right? I mean, that's something that often people don't realize is like, it's not like you know exactly when something is going to be coming up often much long in advance. Um, and so, you know, I mean, you're a busy guy or your dad with, you know, bunch of kids and all that. Like you're not, you don't have as much time to go and care and fight for something that maybe will cost you $150 or something like that of your taxes. But when you multiply that by every single person in a city or in a state, it's hundreds of millions. Meanwhile, that, you know, construction industry or that billionaire family, right, that owns the football, will own the football stadium, you better believe it's worth their time, right? You better believe it because they're getting all the benefits where the costs are diffused amongst the general population. Um, so, I mean, I think that that has a, a lot to do with it. You, you, you're right. It's not itemized. Um, you know, this talk, this gets um, talked about like with corn subsidies, you know, a lot at the federal level. Right. Like if corn subsidies make no sense economically, but it, it would be like a dollar off your federal taxes. Right. Every year. Well, you're not going to care about that. You're not going to get engaged over a dollar. But for like 350 million, right, that go to 100 farmers in Iowa and Nebraska, you better believe it's worth their time, right? I mean, so that's just an incentive problem that we have in, in you know, in, in governance. Um, and, and oftentimes then, too, it's a positive thing for those politicians. They get to have the ribbon-cutting ceremonies, breaking ground, all that kind of stuff, right? I called it press clips economics, you know? And the idea that then they can take credit for, oh, look how many jobs we've created, right, um, through the construction and, and all that kind of stuff, too. So there's sometimes strong incentives for politicians to make these kind of decisions, even if they don't make economic sense, right, they make political sense, you know. And that's often what it boils down to, like we talked about, because remember, their number one incentive usually is to get reelected. Yeah. <laughs> so I think one of the things that I I don't know, I I'm a happy person and I'm I'm optimistic in the sense that uh you know, I I enjoy life and I'm not worried about the world ending tomorrow even though I think it probably will, but I'm not <laughs> worried about it. But going through this this uh season and doing a lot of research on on various areas, it certainly makes me makes me really cynical about mm -hmm. the world, about people, about life, about uh, a lot of things. So right now, I want to talk to you a little bit. You know, you, you've given a really good picture, and I, I love – every time I talk to you, you always give very specific examples. And I love that you can, you can kind of bring ideas to life, so that's extremely helpful. But uh, right now, I want to talk to you more as a, a Christian. Um, sure. And and kind of get at the okay. Well, what do we do with all of this? And and how do you kind of come to the conclusions? How do you live life, um, seeing the things that you see, and probably much more than what you've you've expressed today? Um, but how do you 
yeah, how do you move out from there? So as, as a Christian who values business, who values, um, you know, hard work and, and uh, a free market mm-hmm. as somebody who, who values politics. I mean, that's your, your life. You're, you're passionate about it because yeah. um, you're able to help food truck people when, when uh, the brick and mortar stores want or eBay or whatever wants to kind of, or is content to have them taxed or, or right. disadvantaged. Um, but then also uh, it's not because you, you just want you know, instead of eBay getting a piece of the pie, you want a piece of the pie and you just want to be rich. Like you enjoy helping others and, and giving to others and, and uh, seeking justice and love. Mm-hmm. So how do you, how do you live in that world, seeing all of those things and creating, forming and extending the values that you have? Like what, what practices do you have? What, what, uh, ideologies do you cling to? Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, I think for me, it boils down to, right, um, as God's children, right, we are told to go forth, multiply, and, and essentially prosper, right? It was one of the first commandments we gave, or he gave us, um, and I have found or, be- are, you know, believe nothing helps human flourishing more than freedom, and so what I am always looking to do is to allow for human flourishing and, and essentially what are the ways that um, we inhibit that. And generally um, I have found in, in, you know, my understanding of history and what I've seen personally, it's, it's um, government getting in the way, right. Or, or picking winners and losers often, right. Which is a lot of the examples that we've talked about today and so fighting for those food truck operators, just being wanting to operate their business, um, you know, I've talked, uh, can give you a lot of examples of like people who um, were threatened with jail time for massaging horses because they were told they were being a vet, even though they were just massaging a horse um, and, you know, fighting for them to be able to run a horse massage business. Um, it's because... I want to allow people to live their version of, you know, an American dream, but essentially for them to flourish in, in a way that makes most sense for them. And, and so what are the ways that I can help serve to essentially one, either get government out of the way or, or put everyone on a level playing field so that way they can, you know, find a way to op- to flourish. And I've generally found and believe that, um, Freedom and free markets makes every is peaceful. It's the most peaceful way of interacting in terms of a society and economics, and it leads to the most human flourishing. And 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 that's something that I think want to see. You know, and so that plays out in you know fighting for respective property rights. It's fighting for restriction uh, reductions and regulations or whatever. So, um, does that answer the question? I think. Yeah. So freedom. Yeah. Freedom. It's big. Um, and, and so if I understand correctly, you're, you are trying to use the government to fight itself, like to push back against itself. It's encroachment. Restrain itself. I will say restrain itself. Yeah. So generally, you know, I mean, I think a lot of the reasons why we've seen, um, you know, 
for, for example, take the stadiums, for example, right? A lot of the reasons why you have these bad decisions or unfair decisions and all that is because usually government has the ability to act in a certain area. And so it allows an arena, right, for special interests, large businesses in order to use their influence and money to take advantage of a, of a, of a system, you know? Um, and so if you get the less the government is involved in, in my opinion, then you have less opportunities for those with more resources, more time, more connection to take advantage of the system, right? So it kind of goes back to that example of rent seeking that I mentioned, right? Like if a business has to, you know, spend $100 million in competing in the market versus a million dollars in a lobbying effort, they're always going to choose the lobbying effort because it makes financial sense. But if they don't have that ability because government doesn't decide that issue, then they have to compete on the market side, you know, and that puts everybody at a level playing field. So um, what I try and do is get the government out it less involved and essentially restrain itself. So that way people are free to flourish as best they can and compete evenly. So, okay. All right. And that, that kind of brings me to the, the closing idea I want you to, to touch on. Uh, when you talk about corporations, I think obviously everybody's minds goes to, to capitalism. Mm -hmm. And uh, even though you have, you have corporations in, in uh, more socialistic countries and, Capitalism, socialism, it really is more of a spectrum. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's not like you have uh, pure free markets and um, and such. So, and I would say that capitalism seems to be trending downward in in the eyes of a lot of society, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, and and you've helped me to, I'm very pessimistic, pessimistic about capitalism a lot of times because, uh, yeah, ta talking about money, and the influence that money has and mm -hmm. on, on free markets, somebody's going to accrue a lot of money. And when they do what power and money do and how you can use that, it's yeah. always going to lead to terrible, terrible things. Um, but at the same time, you know, you mentioned North Korea earlier. We know that I'm also very skeptical and pessimistic about socialism and communism, right. um, which, which is why, you know, anarchism makes, makes a lot of sense to me. Cause I'm like, everybody, every system is just really, really messed up. Um, <laughs> What's the common denominator and all of it, right? It's being government. Right? Yeah. yeah, it's government. So, so that's why I can respect what you do because you're not trying to get your party to just be the strongest and, you know, mm -hmm. go and bludgeon everybody else. You're, you're trying to, uh, even though you're using government, you're you're trying to restrain it, and so mm -hmm. I I respect and appreciate that. So maybe we've done a lot of talking about corporations and um, what would be more capitalistic idea ideas and and how uh, money and uh, capital and corporations can uh, in that system can propagandize and influence. But I think it would be unfair to just completely focus on that. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the the flip side of the spectrum, maybe some specific examples um, from history, from around the world, from maybe even even in the United States, some some socialistic aspects of of uh, things that have occurred here throughout our history, and how you've kind of seen propaganda or conspiracy and and those types of things show forth in, in that system. 
So how have we seen like propaganda in like socialist systems in communist? Yeah. yeah. Oh well. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, uh, I, I think you just have to look for example the freedom of the press, right? You know, uh, where in communist socialist systems, right, there generally isn't a freedom of the press, the ability to criticize rulers, and so you know, here's what I always think about, right, is propaganda exists, right? We've talked a lot about about corporate propaganda and and tricking you into buying things or trying to play on emotion rather than just logical reasoning and and facts, right? Um, I But I would always argue that government propaganda is the worst because they have the ability to do it at the power of a gun, you know? And so if they can outlaw competition, for example, or, you know, or essentially prohibit criticisms of it, right? Um, I mean, I think we've seen tons of examples of propaganda from from those kind of systems, you know? Um, I mean, like I said, literally, I'm pretty sure North Korea believes they've won every World Cup, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, that only exists through propaganda, you know? Um, and and look, the United States government has done it too, right? I mean, uh, obviously, the idea of trying to invade Iraq, you know, for nuclear weapons was kind of a propaganda effort, the axis of evil. Um, the first ministry of propaganda ever created was in the United States by Woodrow Wilson in World War One, right, in the lead up of World War One. So, you know, <laughs> um, now propaganda kind of had a different meaning back then. So, you know, I want to be fair. Um, but I mean, I think we've, yeah, we've seen it all, all everywhere, but the difference is, is like I said, it comes back to that marketplace of ideas rather than only one source. Propaganda is very dangerous when there's nobody else to criticize it or push back, you know, and that doesn't exist here because we do have a, a marketplace of ideas, a freedom of ideas, you know, um, people talk about frustrations in America around the media right? Both the right and left, right? Talk about frustrations with mainstream media or, or, you know, the left was very critical of how President Trump treated the news media, you know. um, Well, in other countries, Trump could easily had people locked up who criticized him on the media, right? I mean, that happens all the time, Russia, China, all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think- it, it seems to me like there's maybe two different ends of the spectrum where maybe 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 like uh, if you're familiar with Orwell, you know, 1984, that's that's kind mm-hmm. of the communist end. But then you've also got uh, Huxley, who has more of the um, uh, he, there, there's a different end. You know, you can silence, which is, I think, what uh, communist countries do. But then you can also inundate. And when mm-hmm. you inundate. Um, even if you have competing voices, it's it's easier for them to be drowned out, sure. um, or for you to be sedated. So, but but you at least right, you have some semblance of a choice there. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm I'm not as familiar with Huxley, but I think also what's always very ironic to me is or- Orwell was not like a freedom. He was a socialist. Um, he was against what he would call like Stalinist communism, right? Like you know the whole like oh, well, communism's never really been tried before, right? It's like, oh, they did it wrong, right? That's always, you know, 
there's a joke about that from freedom loving people criticizing communists. It's like, oh, well, you know, we say it's never worked and they say, oh, it's just never been correctly done. Um, Orwell was like that, right? He, he was a socialist, but was against the whole Stalinist idea of socialism and communism. And he, and he believed in the, the true sense, you know, um, so, yeah, my people didn't have the guns, so exactly. it wasn't really <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So that's uh, and, and it's funny because people on the right use Orwell to make fun of or or to point out problems. I shouldn't say make fun of, but to like to point out, like, oh, this is just like 1984. Orwell was right. Look at Big Brother, you know, all that kind of stuff. But he was a socialist, which I always find pretty uh, funny and ironic. So. Well, I think uh, I think that's all the questions I have for you. Um, oh, I, yeah. Uh, th there's a lot that uh, that we could have gotten into. Uh, maybe uh, if you stick around a little bit, we can talk a little bit more about uh, uh, Wilson. I read this really interesting book um, called "Manipulating the Masses." Okay. And it, really thick book. Uh, it it kind of got tedious, but uh, it, it went into Wilson's creation of of propaganda, and it was yeah. it was fascinating. Yeah. Um, I know you had sent me, I'm just looking over the questions. I don't know, you know, obviously you run the show, but talking about like greed or anything like that, anything else you want to touch on? If there's anything, any other thoughts that you have that you want to share, go for it. Well, I mean, I think, you know, talking about this idea of, of the corporate propaganda and everything, particularly from a Christian perspective, you know, I always think like, it's not that they're creating the idols. I think they're just identifying idols in our heart, you know, and, and trying to play on it to get us to buy that new car, that new iPhone or, or whatever. Um, and so, yes, I fight for the right for businesses to be able to act freely. You know, um, we, you mentioned a little bit about the, the whole, um, massive accumulation of wealth by some, you know, I think always the difference is, is, was it done through a voluntary means or did somebody use the power of the state to accumulate that, you know? Um, for example, that's why the Bible talks so much about, you know, generally how wealthy people are wrong because they use manipulation, usually through slaves back in those days, right? And so you were literally using the power of the sword to extract wealth through people, through slaves, whereas in that free market sense, right, which we've talked about a little bit or hinted at and talked about before, there is a difference between, I get why people are frustrated with, if this is what they think capitalism is, is what we have today, I would, I'm frustrated too, right? That's literally what I do is try and fight against it. But it's to get to that true free sense of free market capitalism, true capitalism, um, which I think isn't necessarily around greed or consumerism. It's about using you know, resources more efficiently to create value and through voluntary exchange, right? Which goes back to that Christian ethos that we kind of talked about at the beginning, right? Like I always give the example, um, J.K. Rowling is a very wealthy author and it's because I thought I was better off of spending 20 bucks to read a Harry Potter book, right? We increased income inequality every time I gave her $20. She got $20, but I thought I was better off because I got a book. You know, and so it's always through that voluntary exchange and and true of true free market capital sense that I think actually puts if the closest thing to any kind of check on greed because it's about providing value to others. So 
I think that's one thing I thought might be worth mentioning. Yeah, and I'll I'll uh, put a link to our last conversation because we got more into that kind of stuff mm-hmm. there, uh, and I, and I appreciated how you you uncovered, yeah, how the system isn't really capitalistic. Uh, I thought the great example that you gave there was, um, I forget the the proper term, but with the uh, medical the medical yes. licenses for like MRI machines and things, certificate of needs, yes, certificate of needs, yeah, that's it. Uh, yep. That was that was just fascinating to me because it's like well. I I think there's there's a lot of injustice and especially be, so maybe it's maybe it's a little bit too different here in Romania but we go to the doctor and we don't have to pay anything mm-hmm. and we do pay like we uh you, you have taxes like once a year you go in and you pay for for health insurance and I'm sure the state subsidizes it so it should probably cost me more here in Romania but I think it's closer in Romania than than what it is in the states uh, some some of the you know an IV bag of saline water can be I don't know a hundred bucks and right. it's just insane and uh, it it seems unjust towards mm-hmm. uh, especially a certain demographic of the the population who can't afford that kind of thing um, and but when you explain things like certificate of needs you're like oh well it's not capitalism that right. really did that it's the government right um, the, the government not restraining itself. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, but I mean, you know, just to kind of wrap up, you're right. Influence plays out or, you know, propaganda plays out in every level, you know, Um, generally, I think it's better at least coming from a corporate side than a government side. But then even on the corporate side, I think it's because it, it, it has the ability to play out in so much of our lives and mislead us because we essentially allow the government to make so many decisions. So it creates opportunities for big corporations, wealthy individuals to take advantage of the influence and money that they have in order to protect themselves, increase their profits, gain unfavorable advantages, you know? So that's how it often plays out. And I see it all the time. Yeah, it is. It does seem a little bit ironic to me that a lot of the people who, who hate uh, corporations and capitalism basically want to give all the power to the biggest corporation that exists. (laughs) Exactly. And the only one that can enforce things through the barrel of a gun. Right. All right. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Appreciate it. All right. Have a good night. All right. That's all for now. So peace. And because I'm a pacifist, when I say it, I mean it. podcast is a part of the Kingdom Outpost Network. Please check out the links below to find other great podcasts and content related to nonviolence and kingdom living.